If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony, testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will again be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in, into prison until he, he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had, had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to uh, be with you this morning and to open this part of God's Word. Please keep your Bibles open. It's uh, Matthew chapter 18. And uh, let me lead us in prayer again as uh, we come to reflect on this part of God's Word. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your Word and we thank you for this time. And we ask that you give us uh, insight, understanding, and most of all, that you'd work in our hearts by your Spirit that uh, you would shape us into the people that you want us to be, that we would listen to your word and put it into practice. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, put your hand up if you like conflict. Well, there's one hand. Okay, that's good. Um, maybe I should say, um, put, perhaps if you like um, being involved in it, maybe you like watching it, you know, on the sporting field or on the latest, you know, TV drama or whatever it is. Conflict is, is quite a, you know, entertaining thing in some ways. But I think very few of us actually like to be involved in personal, interpersonal conflict. And yet, conflict is part of life. It's part of life. For, that's true for everyone. It's true for for Christians, for followers of Jesus, uh, we are involved in conflict. 
Sometimes, uh, perhaps often, sin is involved in that conflict. Uh, We sin against others, others sin against us. We fail to do what is right in God's eyes. So what do we do? What do we do when a fellow Christian brother or sister fails when they, when they sin against us? Now, Jesus has, uh, has a lot to teach us in uh, today's passage. Um, he doesn't say everything that could be said on this topic, but there is much that, that we need to listen to here. But perhaps before we dive into what Jesus says, let's just consider some of the, what I call the, the failed ways that we respond to the failure of others. Um, I think a common failure is, um, is to, to talk about the person rather than to the person. Uh, so your, uh, your, your brother or sister in Christ sins against you. Uh, you go and you, you point out their fault to a bunch of your sympathetic friends and persuade them as to what a terrible thing it was that your friend did to you. Uh, no, hang on a second, that's not what Jesus says to do. Um, or perhaps as sometimes happens if your brother or sister sins, you... Well, you go to the minister and you tell him what, what they did and, and so triangulate him into sort of having a chat with them about what they did to you and no, that's, that's, a, that's a disaster. Or worse still, you uh, go talk to your sympathetic friends and then you go to the minister and say, well, everyone is saying that so-and-so did this, you should really go and have a talk. No, that's not what Jesus says to do. Um, now, just on that, I should have a qualifier that uh, sometimes it can be helpful uh, to talk to someone in the, in the first instance, if it's done appropriately in order to seek wisdom, maybe get some perspective on things or advice about the best thing to do and how to go about things. But only speaking about a person rather than to the person, that's a failed way of dealing with failure. A second failure can be to not say anything, to just kind of let things slide. Now, depending on the nature of the sin, or the failure, depending on the person's response to it, there can certainly be a time to just kind of let things slide. Perhaps they already realise what they did and what they need from you is forgiveness and grace rather than kind of having their faults itemised for them. It can be a place for letting things slide, but to take the position of never saying anything can end up just being actually permissive and saying, look, sin doesn't matter. It's okay to sin. You know, if the... If the youth group leader is sleeping with his girlfriend and no one says anything, well, everyone is in effect saying it's not sin, whereas the Bible says that sexual relationships outside of marriage are sin. By not saying anything, he's saying either it's not sin or it doesn't really matter. So being permissive, not saying anything, is not the way to go. It's terribly unhelpful for the other person. The other problem with not saying anything can be what I'll describe as the volcano effect. You know, where you say nothing... And everything sort of kept underground and the pressure is slowly building until eventually something cracks the surface and it explodes. You explode and tell them how, what a terrible person they are. Being permissive, not saying anything is not the way to go. But the opposite can be equally unhelpful. To be constantly on the lookout for the sins of others so that you can jump on it and say, aha, you did that thing wrong a kind of moralistic spot it and stop it campaign, that's miles from what Jesus teaches here. Now, this is, this is like the parent who's, who's always looking for, for something to correct their, in their child or the spouse who's watching constantly to gather ammunition for the next round of conflict or like the, the water polo player who pushes themselves up high in the water by pushing others down below 
the water. There are ways that we can respond to failure. There's three ways that I think we can fail to respond to failure. Talking about someone rather than to someone, being permissive, not saying anything at all, or being condemning and highlighting every fault. And I, I wonder if maybe it's helpful for us just, you know, at this point to humbly recognise that we're probably all guilty of all of those things at various points in time, uh, put ourselves on the same page, come to God's word, humbly seeking to listen to him and to, to seek to do things his way. Because in contrast to our failed ways of dealing with failure, Jesus gives here what I call four, four steps to dealing with the sin of a brother or sister. Now notice, firstly, it's talking about a, a brother or sister in Christ, a fellow Christian. Um, that's, that's what's on view here. Uh, Jesus says, verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Now, depending which um, English translation you've got, I've got the NIV uh, 2011 here. Uh, it may say, if your brother or sister sins against you. It adds in that this is speaking about sinning, them sinning against you, or whether it's just them sinning in general. Either case... Uh, your Bible will probably have a footnote, if your uh, eyesight's good enough to read the footnotes, that uh, tells you that uh, it's, there's, a, there's a variation there. So which is it? Well, I think it's kind of a line ball as to whether Matthew's original gospel included the words against you and scribes have, some scribes have dropped it out for some reason, or whether it wasn't there and some scribes have added it in for some reason. It only makes a subtle difference and what Jesus says makes sense. Either way, as I hope we'll see. It is interesting to notice down in verse 21, Peter's follow-up question to Jesus in, speaks of, um, uh, includes the words, against me. So Peter has in mind a situation in which a brother or sister is sinning against him. Maybe that tips things towards including it at verse 15. Um, if I've lost you, don't worry, come back. Uh, it's, it's not a big deal. Step one. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins or sins against you, notice, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Or as the ESV version says, between you and him alone. Now that is a brilliant thing to do, unsurprising. Jesus tells us to do it. Because sometimes when we do that, we discover actually the conflict wasn't a matter of sin. It was a matter of misunderstanding or, or miscommunication and, and just having a conversation about it can clear things up and, and you can helpfully move forward. But if it turns out to be a matter of sin, notice the goal here. Notice the goal of speaking to them. It's, it's not to condemn them. It's not to get one up on them. It's not to seek revenge. It's not even to seek justice. You know, you did this, there needs to be... Consequence. I mean, justice is good and right, but that's not what Jesus is saying is the goal, the motivation here. The goal here is to win them over. Or as the ESV more literally puts it, to gain your brother. The goal is to, to bring realisation and repentance on their part and to bring restoration, to bring reconciliation. That's our motivation. Our motivation, it, well, really, it's not about us. It's not about our rights and our grievances and our vindication. It's about them and their godliness. So our desire to, to love them 
is what should motivate us, to, to help them to not continue on in unrepentant sin. We want to gain our brother or our sister back. It's like what um, Paul says in uh, Galatians 6. It'll come up on the screen here. Uh, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when when they're not, they deceive themselves. Now, there's a lot in those few verses, and this isn't a sermon on Galatians 6, but just notice uh, there the goal, similar to Matthew 8, and the goal is to restore, to restore them who's caught in sin, and, and to do it gently, to do it with a humility that watches ourselves, that the guards, guards against their own sin, including the sin of being judgmental and, and uh, condemning them. So step one, Jesus says, go to them, just the two of you and seek to win them back but if they won't listen step two take one or two others along Uh, importantly notice why it's not a case of you know grabbing your besties who generally tend to agree with you and kind of go in force as some kind of power move against them the one or two others notice there are witnesses now, perhaps they're additional witnesses to the sin. They, they saw what happened and they can testify to that. It's, it's not just, you know, your word against their word. Uh, or maybe they're witnesses to the conversation between the two of you. Either way, witnesses are called in because there's opposition, because there's dispute. You, know, I mean, you only need witnesses if, there's, if something is being disputed and you're trying to get to the truth. So you go to them with one or two others and hopefully your brother or sister can see, well, it's not just you who's concerned about them and concerned about their, what they're doing, but, but others are equally concerned about them and, and what they're doing. Hopefully they'll listen and respond rightly. But verse 17, if they refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And what does that look like? How do you do that? Is this with or without their consent? How do you do that in, a, in our modern Australian context and the way we do church and Where does that sit with defamation laws? This is a a tricky area. But I guess leaving aside for a minute our our particular context, notice what Jesus does and doesn't say here. Jesus is not talking about kicking someone out of church or excommunicating them. Uh, There are other passages in the scripture which which speak along those lines, such as uh, 1 Corinthians 5 and Romans 16 verse 17, Titus 3, 10 to 11. But I don't think Jesus in Matthew 18 is talking about kicking people out of the church. He says, if they refuse to listen to you, if they refuse to listen to one or two other witnesses, then tell it to the church with the hope that they'll listen to the church. Again, the motive here is not to expel them from the church. The motive is not even to to warn the church of them and their sin, as appropriate and necessary as that may be at times. The motive is still to... Have them listen, to win them over, to see them repentant, to see them restored as a brother or sister in Christ. And so the the telling to the church, whatever that looks like, and maybe we we can discuss this later, what that may or may not look like. The aim of that, doing that is, has the aim of strengthening and widening the witness such that hopefully they would, they would wake up to themselves, they'd realise, well, this is not just the opinion of one or, or two or three people. This, they actually face the choice of refusing to listen to the church. 
and continuing in their way or of repenting and being restored. That's step three. If they refuse to listen, what then? Expel them and then condemn them? Have nothing to do with them? Well, that's not what Jesus says, is it? He says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Or as ESV puts it, let him be to you, and the you there is singular. It's not speaking about the church's response, it's your response. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, for Jews, to regard someone as a Gentile or a tax collector is to regard them as an outsider. Let your relationship with them be of that as to an outsider. I think what Jesus is saying is, here, look, you've, you've gone to your brother or sister, you've treated them as a brother or sister in Christ, you've sought to gain them back as a brother or sister in Christ, but they, they continue to refuse to listen. Despite all your efforts, you, you, you've done what you can, let it go. Your, your commitment to them as a brother or sister, to do what you can to see them won over, that has limits. There can come a time where there's nothing more you can do other than to relate to them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, which is not to write them off. It's not to ignore them. I mean, consider how Jesus treated tax collectors. He loved them. He, he called them to himself. He, he called them to change, but he loved them. And, and Jesus taught us how, did he, how are we to treat our enemies? We're to pray for our enemies. We're to love our enemies, that they would be saved so I think to let them be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector means, well, treat them as you would treat anyone who hasn't yet come to repentance. Continue to bring the gospel to bear on, on our own lives and on the lives of those around us. So Jesus lays out here four steps to dealing with the sin of a brother or sister. But I actually think calling it four steps is maybe a little unhelpful. Because it kind of makes it sound, you know, neat and simple. And in practice, it's, it's not neat, it's not clear, it's not simple. It can, be, it can be messy, it can require great wisdom, great humility and grace to, to navigate this. For example, maybe you speak to someone and seemingly win them over, they're repentant. But then the next week they do the same thing again. Well... Does that mean they didn't listen the first time and it's time to go to step two and take someone else? Maybe. Or maybe it just means that like you, they're a sinner and they're, they're struggling with sin and, and what they need from you is not escalating judgment but actually humility and grace and forgiveness. It is tricky. But the important thing, and I think the thing that will help us to navigate this, the, 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 to grasp it, to, to grasp the overarching motive. That's the important thing, to see that the motive must be one of love. Love for our brother or sister. Love that, that wants to see them not caught up in an unrepentant sin, but actually see them restored and forgiven and, and continuing with us as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And friends, this really matters. It really matters that we care and love our brothers and sisters to, to, to see them want to be won back and to continue following Christ. It matters so much because it actually has eternal consequences, which I think is the point of the, the next slightly strange to our ears thing that Jesus says. He says, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. You see, what we do on earth has a heavenly eternal effect. As we deal with our brother or sister who has sinned against us, as we declare to them the judgment of God, binding them in God's judgment in that sense, or as we declare to them the mercy of God, loosing them by God's mercy, so God in heaven is bringing judgment, is bringing mercy upon them. It's in the work of the declaration of the gospel that heaven and earth interact. Our Father in heaven is at work through such binding and loosing ministry of his people. Because where two or three gather in his name, there is he with them. Heaven has, has come to earth in that sense. This love-motivated, restorative-directed ministry of the gospel of Jesus in the lives of his people, he is with us in that. He's working through us to, to bring the kingdom of, God, of, of heaven in that sense. You can see this is a pretty big deal. So, our love for our brother or sister who sins against us motivates us to go and speak to them. Hopefully to to lead them to to listen, to repent, to to seek our forgiveness. So the question then is, well, will we forgive them? What if it's not the first time? Or the second time? Or the third time? Peter has the same thought. Uh, Peter, hearing this, he comes and questions Jesus. Verse 21, he says, then Peter, it says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Uh, up to seven times? Now, I reckon Peter's probably trying to be generous here, actually. I, I think he's, he's not just talking about second chances or third chances or fifth chances. He's going all out. He's saying, look, what about seven? Jesus, that, that, that sounds pretty generous. Poor Peter. Jesus answers, verse 22. I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or it could be 70 times seven. Quick maths, 490 times. Now, Jesus is not saying, look, yep, keep counting until you get to 77 or 490. He's saying, don't count. You know, it's not about keeping score. It's not, you know, telling up infringements as if it's kind of, well, forgive, 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 forgive. But when I get to 77, no, condemn. No, It's not about keeping score. It's not about counting. It's about being people of abundant forgiveness, of, you could say, excessive forgiveness. Jesus' use of the number 77 is is likely a reference to to Lamech in uh, Genesis 4. I don't know if you remember Lamech. If you you don't know who Lamech is, go back and read uh, Genesis 4 sometime. It is a bit of a nasty piece of work. Um, Lamech boasted to his wives And I feel like I've got to put a sort of Arnie voice on for this, but I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. Oh, where are we? Uh, If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. You always know a a, um, a, a scary dude when he calls himself by his own name, but um, calls himself in the third person. Lamech was a man of, of vengeance, excessive vengeance. Someone wounded him, so he killed them. Jesus says, don't be... Someone of excessive vengeance, like Lamech. Be like Jesus, someone of excessive forgiveness. 
Jesus who, well, he responded to the sin of this world, not by condemning it, but by coming to die on a cross to save the world, such that we, his enemies, could be forgiven. Jesus calls us to to forgive much, just as we have been forgiven much. And that really is the point of this this brilliant uh, parable that Jesus goes on to tell of the king and his servants. It's, um, it's a difficult parable to preach on because it's, so, it's such a good parable. If you haven't got it from reading it, it's kind of like, what, what can I add to it but by preaching? But I'll just draw a few things out. The king there is settling his, his accounts. He's bringing judgment, settling his accounts with his servants. Uh, one servant owed him, uh, it says, 10,000 bags of gold. I mean, just picture that, 10,000 bags of gold. That's, that's a lot of bags of gold, right? Um, that, you might have a little footnote, again, if you can... Uh, if you can read the footnote, it says it's literally 10,000 talents and a talent was worth about 20 years of a day labourer's wage. So one talent, 20 years. 10,000 talents, 200,000 years of daily wage. The point is it's an impossibly large debt. I mean, Jesus could have said he owed a gazillion, million, trillion, billion dollars. It's, it's that kind of idea. It's an impossibly large debt. And so, verse 25, since he was not able to pay, obviously, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The master's going to recoup something towards this, this massive debt. But at this, verse 26, uh, there we are. Uh, at this, the, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Now notice here that the servant asks for patience, for time, for time such that he can, he can try to pay back this impossibly large debt. He asks for patience, but instead the master gave him mercy and forgiveness. Verse 27, the servant, servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, or literally forgave the debt, it's the same word, and let him go. He released him. Well, this forgiven servant then went out and verse 28 says, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Uh, As the footnote says, a hundred denarii, which uh, is a hundred days wages. So a tiny amount, a hundred days wages in comparison to 200,000 years wages. It says he, uh, where is it? He grabbed him. And began to choke him, this, this fellow servant who owed him this relatively small debt. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees, begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Notice he says almost exactly the same thing as the first servant said to the king. He also asks for patience so he can repay the debt. But verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then then the master uh, called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. In other words, until never. 
This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The point is simple, yet profound. If we are forgiven servants of the King, if our Heavenly Father has mercifully forgiven us this enormous debt that, that we have due to our sin, that we could never repay, that we, it would be impossible for us to deal with ourselves. If we've been forgiven such an impossibly large amount by, by God, how can we stand in condemnation over our brother or sister in Christ and withhold forgiveness? If we are people of forgiveness by God's mercy, then we must be people of forgiveness who show mercy to others. Or turn it around the other way, as Jesus does. If we refuse to forgive others, well, that's a sign that, that we're like the first servant who we haven't rightly received forgiveness ourselves. We haven't understood it. We haven't embraced it. Perhaps we're, we're blind to the impossibly large debt that we've been forgiven. Jesus says you must forgive your brother or sister from your heart. That's, that's got to be our knee-jerk response. Or God will not extend his forgiveness to you. Now this topic of forgiveness is a, is a big one. It's a bit of a, a minefield in some ways. Um, and I, I, I welcome your questions. If you want to explore... Yeah, but what about, but what about? A lot more can and needs to be said about forgiveness. Um, sometimes forgiveness is quick and easy. Uh, other times forgiveness is, is immensely difficult and slow. Uh, sometimes it, it can take time to, to feel the effect of forgiveness. Sometimes a long time after the decision to, to pursue forgiveness or the decision to forgive. The, the decision can come to, I'm going to release that person from from their debt to me and and head in the direction of forgiveness but feeling the effects of that can take some time Uh, forgiveness also doesn't mean that there aren't still consequences in this world forgiveness also doesn't necessarily mean restoration or reconciliation of of the relationship that will depend on various things including the other person's recognition of their sin their ownership of that their willingness to to repent and to to change uh, I want to say in, in a domestic abuse situation where a perpetrator is, is seemingly sorrowful but then continues in this perpetual cycle of abuse, in that context, forgiveness doesn't mean putting up with sin and, and just allowing yourself and others to be abused. That is certainly a situation where we're talking to a trusted friend or to, to a pastor to seek advice and help is a good and right thing to do. Forgiveness can be tricky. And forgiveness is not the only aspect of responding to sin but the take-home from what Jesus teaches here is that as people who have been forgiven much we must strive to be people whose knee-jerk response whose from the heart response is to forgive others in response to God's forgiveness of us what are the implications for us well for some of us maybe for many of us this could this could be a live one Maybe someone has sinned against you. Maybe you've sinned against someone. They've come to you and and pointed out what you've done. Maybe it's a bit of both. How are you going to respond? Well, my prayer is it'll be with gentleness and humility 
with wisdom, with repentance, with forgiveness, with a, with a desire to pursue reconciliation, restoration, where that's possible. My prayer is that we will respond with that abundant, excessive, 77-fold love and forgiveness that reflects God's abundant, excessive, 77-fold forgiveness of us. How about a lead us in prayer? Um, and then I think we're going to pray and then we'll have opportunity for questions. That's right. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we do thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ who has, has come to us and by his death and resurrection has brought reconciliation, has brought forgiveness. Father, we thank you that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Father, we know that we deserve your condemnation and yet you have mercy on us. Father, we are sorry that we sin against you and against our brothers and sisters. We are sorry for our failings. And we pray that by your spirit you would lead us to repent, to apologise, to seek to be reconciled. Father, you know the hurts that we suffer from other people using us and abusing us and not treating us properly. Father, we pray that you would give to us that same generosity, that same graciousness, that same mercy, that forgiveness that you have. We pray that our concern would be for our enemy's salvation and not for our own feelings. Father, we pray that we would speak to them for their benefit, that we may bring witnesses and the church to them for their benefit and not for ours. And we pray that you give us grace and wisdom to know how best to do this. Father, we pray too for your spirit to take away from us those hurts that can't be resolved in this world knowing that you are in control, knowing that, that all things will come to you and be dealt with by you properly in due time. So, Father, we pray for your help. We beg your, your mercy that there may be no conflicts amongst us, but where there are, Father, we ask that you'd enable us to do as our Lord has taught us so that we might bring honour and glory to him, even in our conflict. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.